grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you ever wonder how a preacher selects a sermon text? Well, let me give you a little tour into the mind of a deacon at work. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, publishes a three-year lectionary of selected text. You have this week's selections from the Old Testament, the Epistles, and the Gospel printed on the back of your bulletins. Now, a careful expositor will read through each one of these passages, hoping to glean a pattern, an overarching theme, perhaps, a key word or idea, something, anything, to be able to hang 15 to 1,800 words on in a fashion that imparts something to the hearers. That's, that's the goal. Well, I'm a deacon. I don't work like that. Uh, my mind has an interesting way of getting there. See, I took a look at that Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah, and I saw the first verse, Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. And, oh, that's it. thought to myself, nope. I'll just leave that one for Pastor Mike to tackle some other time. You know, a little too tough. Then I turned to the epistle reading from Romans 6, and in comparison, that just seemed too easy. It practically writes itself. So I moved on from there. And so I went on to the gospel. You know, I I need to be challenged. I I need something to get me going, so I have to dig in. So, but then we're in the middle read the gospel, I, I saw it. See, the last time I was here before you, we talked about, among many other things related to the doctrine of the Trinity, an isolated passage taken from Matthew 10, of all places, that I, I just happened to throw in there to make a point. And now I've got this new opportunity, and it just so happens that our gospel reading for today picks up at the very next verse. Now, How beautiful is that? That just makes me crack up. Because in God's universe, there are no coincidences, as the rabbis are fond of saying. So I just had to go with the gospel. Now, wasn't that little tour fun? Well, unfortunately, the, the fun stops here. Because Jesus tells his closest friends some very disturbing things. Things about the conflicts that will arise because they are trusting in him. In our introductory verse, Matthew 10, 5a, we're told these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. But as Matthew tends to do, he almost immediately shifts from the Lord's instructions to his disciples on this initial mission trip in verses 5 through 16, and he jumps to a long-term look at what would be needed for the entirety of the church age. See, this is part of Matthew's pattern in writing his gospel. He covers various events in narrative form, and then sandwiches in between them collections of Jesus' teachings about selected topics. And we have one of those collections here with a brief recounting of the disciples' initial foray into the mission field as a lead-in. I don't think Jesus ever put all these nuggets of truth together in one long string as it's written here, but he undoubtedly said all of these things. He probably shared them many times as he taught his followers in the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. 
The bottom line is that his original hearers were warned that persecutions were coming and that there would be times when believers are challenged about their faith. Not only back then, but even today and going forward until the last day. In our day, we are constantly feeling pressure to water down the truths of Scripture as a means of going along to get along. But you know, truth is not so easily abandoned without doing serious harm to society in general and to our souls in particular. These days, we're hearing more and more that there are no absolute truths, but rather what we are claiming as being real, tangible truths are merely and only personal preferences. Now, if you remember Matthew 10, 19, and 20 that I dealt with back on Trinity Sunday was all about how God was going to speak through those disciples who were going to be persecuted for believing. And we found in those three Gospels not written by John that Jesus inferred that the entire Trinity was involved in this supernatural occurrence. But then we dive into this week's Gospel, verse 21. It starts us off with some shocking words. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. What, what a nightmare. Who would sign up for that? Now, Jesus does continue, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But even this gives us a bit of pause, a hint of foreboding, doesn't it, in that word endures. See, enduring implies unpleasantness, pain, long-suffering. But in the last take, the important takeaway from these verses is not that you may well be harassed and feel helpless in the midst of it, but that the reactions you get are not because of some failing or shortcoming in you. It's not your fault. It's a pre-existing consequence of faith, an outworking of the continuing battle between the kingdom of God and the world's kingdom of sin. See, hatred of Jesus just spills over onto those who reflect his teachings. Still, you do have God's enduring promise that you will endure, in spite of the hatred and dismissal that often goes along with taking a stand for the faith. So the mission of the church to take the gospel to the world is a burden. There is effort involved and personal sacrifice. As we saw evidence just this past week as our church put on vacation Bible school. Because doing something like that takes time, it takes talent, and it takes seemingly no end of work to pull off, frankly. And in the midst of that, the seed is sown. But most of the time, the results are not readily recognizable. But don't think for a moment that the labor was in vain or not worth it. God was at work in the midst of it all, and his purposes will be realized in the end. Speaking of the end, 
Some of Jesus' words reach forward to the very end of the church age. You can see this most clearly here in verse 23, which reads, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, Matthew wrote these words long after the initial missionary trip of the disciples was finished, and even after Jesus' earthly lifetime. And yet the Son of Man had not yet come. He obviously wasn't writing about the second coming happening before Jesus' ministry had ended. He knew better. Instead, these particular words are a word of comfort to a future generation, a promise that during that great final tribulation, the Lord will return before the future beleaguered believers would run out of places to run to. That's comfort. Another nugget we find here, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, that's an interesting little phrase there. But what we have to understand from it is that it's an honor to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And bearing suffering for his namesake certainly qualifies for that. We can't expect to be treated with more deference than our master. We are Christians. You know, even that name for believers was coined as a dismissive slur by Greek Gentiles in Antioch. And of course, in some circles, it still carries that same connotation today. Jesus goes on, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we've seen a repeated pattern in sacred scripture. Noah was called to preach the imminent destruction of the earth and was derided and mocked for it. Jonah wanted nothing to do with the message he was given to share until God persuaded him to speak to Nineveh. Jeremiah was called to preach destruction to his hearers, and you can hear the pain and inner conflict he felt as he experienced the betrayal from the Lord because that promised destruction hadn't yet come. And he was just there amidst the rejection by his friends and and feeling the conflicting pressure to share what God had told him in spite of it all. Each of them and many others were sustained through the tough times. I'm reminded that among the last things Jesus shared with his disciples, he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's John 16, 33. 
There's a final word of comfort from Matthew's passage that reads like this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I'm not sure what a sparrow is worth in the open market today, in part because the current laws ban ownership of most wild birds. Okay, so don't think about snaring some or anything. But the good news is that you are worth something to God. He established the price for all eternity. Your life and mine is worth Jesus living a perfect life only to be raised up on a Roman cross for our salvation. That's a free gift, as we are reminded in Romans 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the meantime, God finds value in giving us work to do here and now. In his great commission, Jesus sets before us our mission. While we are going about our daily lives, we are to reflect what God means to us to those we encounter along the way. We will be blessed in that effort. And he promises to be faithful in return, even in the midst of persecution. Jesus is coming again. Of that you can be certain. The day or the hour are not for us to know, but in God's perfect timing it will come to pass. That is when we will realize the overwhelming size of our forever family. No more family conflict, because in heaven every man is a brother and every woman a sister, all united under one heavenly, eternal Father. These things, despite the doubters who oppose them today, are most certainly true. Of this, have no fear. Amen.